We read together to remind us of where we are going. That is towards Jesus. Allowing the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the family of God to form a fidelity of allegiance to him alone. Please read aloud with me as we confess this together. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Welcome to church. I'm glad you're here. My name is Matthew, one of the pastors here. And uh, if you would just turn to your neighbor and give him a really big smile. If you're watching online, throw a little smile emoji there in the chat. We're glad to have you today. I want to give you a couple things real quick before we jump in. Um, for those of you that would like to follow along in the message, there's a QR code on the screen. You can kind of scan it. It'll pull up scriptures and some notes you can follow along with us. This week is what's called Holy Week, kind of in the, in the church calendar, if you will. And uh, Holy Week is the week leading up to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which we celebrate next Sunday. It's going to be incredible. One of the things that we want to help you to do as disciples, as people wanting to walk in the way of Jesus is to really make sure we align our hearts and our spirits um, and our minds in the right direction for this celebration of Easter Sunday. And so we've put together a 40-hour devotional and a kind of a family devotional as well as some activities and things for you personally to participate in. And uh, one of those things is fasting for 40 hours starting at 3 p.m. on Good Friday going until 7 a.m. on Easter Sunday morning, and then you're able to kind of break the fast that morning with some breakfast at home with your family. Um, there's instructions on how to fast and the things that you'll need in um, our 40-hour kind of guide that we put together, a PDF. You can get that from the Central Hub. You can text in um, the keyword 40 hours to our text line and get you started. Um, but I want to encourage you to join with us. I believe that um, what we do with our physical bodies impacts our spiritual beings. And fasting is one of the ways that we can align ourselves and find ourselves in proper position to be engaged with God in this holy, holy moment and this wonderful celebration of Easter. And so I want to challenge you to do that. Uh, be a part of it, and uh, it's going to be, be really great. Go with me to Matthew chapter 3. We're beginning and kind of on the front end of a collection of messages where we're journeying through the gospel of Matthew. We said last week that the gospels are the gospel. Within these gospels, we hear the gospel that Jesus gospeled. We hear the gospel, the good news that he told us about. And we said that if we don't start with the gospel that Jesus preached, we may end up with a gospel that Jesus did not preach. 
here in just a little bit, towards the end of the message, I'm going to share with you four American pop gospels that have kind of led us to a place that doesn't fully embrace the gospel that Jesus himself proclaimed. They're close to it, but they're not quite it. We're going to unpack that a little bit later. Mark Clark said this. He's the author of a book called The Problem of Jesus. And he's making a case for understanding the real Jesus. He says this, locating Jesus in his original context is paramount for two big reasons. First, it works against a dangerous temptation that we all have, making Jesus in our own image and using him for whatever agenda we need hit for. We all face this similar temptation. But we must do the work of locating Jesus in his setting so that we don't make the mistake of adapting him into ours. Jesus was not a 21st century, middle-class, white North American. Nor was he a rural Chinese farmer or a New Age guru. He was not a communist, a capitalist, or a social justice warrior. He was not a Democrat or a Republican, a liberal or a conservative. He was a first century Galilean Jew who spoke and lived just like his contemporaries, but with an explosive message for all people in every time and place, including ours. Amen? Last week, we said that if we're going to look at this understanding of good news, we need to understand the context and the kind of perception and the understanding that those who would be hearing the good news in this first century, uh, in the time when Jesus walked on the earth, we need to understand their paradigm of what good news meant to them, of, of what it would have required. And we said there were four keystones, if you will, to something being considered good news. Number one, it, good news required it to be an announcement of an event that happened. Good news, the gospel requires that there is a larger context, a, a backstory within which all of this story of Jesus actually makes sense, which is why we can't remove the story of Jesus from the story of God's people, Israel. Jesus is actually the culmination of that story, and his story is central to those things. It's, a, it's set in a context. We said that good news requires just the sudden unveiling, something happened, unveiled suddenly, Jesus, the Messiah, the King, was here. He was born, lived, died, rose again, ascended, and now sits enthroned. Those are important components. And finally, good news kind of requires a transformation of a present moment as we sit between something that happened and a future moment of something that will happen. And that's where we find ourselves. And these are the context of understanding the gospel. Now let's jump into Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to look at a man by the name of John the Baptist, and we're going to get a glimpse into the gospel message that he proclaimed, and we're going to see that it aligns really, really well with the gospel that Jesus himself proclaimed. John came before Jesus. John was Jesus' cousin, and often is referred to John the Baptist because he came baptizing people. And we don't want to get him confused with John the Apostle or John the Beloved. And there are a lot of Johns in the Bible. And so we just want to kind of keep it all straight and clean. John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1, says this. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, 
Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Can, can we leave verse 2 on the screen? And can we together read that verse out loud? Just verse 2. Are you ready? Let's read that with me. Ready, go. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Well done. I'll keep reading. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord's coming. Clear the roads for him. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins... He baptized them in the Jordan River. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees, these religious elite and leaders coming to watch him baptized, he denounced them. You broad of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Do not just say to each other, eh, we're safe. For we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from the very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals or to even be his slave. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. He will then clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. Ooh, that just makes you feel good, doesn't it? <laughs> Not even close. Oh, man, how confronting is that? How confronting is that? John's message is incredibly similar to Jesus' message. In fact, if you just look over to the next chapter in John 4 and verse 12 or verse 17, it says, this is Jesus talking, repent. For your, of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's the exact same phrase John used. Jesus and John were preaching the same thing. John's message was repent of your sins, not your neighbor's sins, but your sins. Don't point out the, the sins of the church that you used to go to. Repent of your sins. Don't major on the sins of your spouse. Repent of your sins. Don't point the finger at other nations. Repent of your sins and turn to God. Repenting is turning to God and away from your own life, away from your own agenda, away from your own lordship, away from your own kingship, and it is turning towards God, moving in his direction. This is what it means to repent and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. I thought it was interesting that it was after that they confessed their sins, then he baptized them. Like, I don't know what that looked like. I don't know what that looked like. Like, did they come down to the water? Hello, my name is Matthew, and I used to be X, Y, and Z. 
Uh, this week I committed a sin by X, Y, and Z. Okay, now you can go ahead and be baptized. Let's repent and let's get under the water. Like, how intense would that have been if that's how it worked out? Friends, we're celebrating water baptism next week. Um, and we are not going to have a microphone by the water making you proclaim all of your deepest, darkest sins and secrets before you go into the water. Why? Because the very fact that you're in the water acknowledges the fact that you know and we all know you were a sinner anyways. And the point of water baptism is to be a public demonstration of an inward repentance that's already occurred. It's a public celebration and a statement of something inwardly you recognize that I was going away from God, leading my own life, being the Lord of my own life, the one who called the shots in my life, and I am turning my allegiance to Jesus, and I'm going to move in his direction for my salvation, for my hope, for my life. I'm going to move in his direction as king and Lord of all of my life. This is what we do in water baptizing. And if you've never been water baptized, don't make the mistake. Do it this, this coming Sunday. Sign up. There's some, some videos and some prerequisites that we want to lead you through to make sure you understand what it means and the commitment that you're making and what do you believe about Jesus. And we're, we're going to help you with those things. But, but get signed up and get baptized this coming Sunday. It's going to be a fantastic celebration. John's message was the same, though, as Jesus. In fact, it even pointed to Jesus. John did not center himself in the gospel. The gospel wasn't about John. And the gospel's not about you. It impacts you and it impacts me. But the gospel is about Jesus. The king who has come. The Messiah. The Lord of all lords. It's about Jesus. And John made sure that he didn't focus in on the nuances. He wasn't getting into the nuts and bolts of how things were unfolding. It was just the fact that Jesus was coming and was here, that now we see Jesus coming and he is king. And they use this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. That's not heaven up there. Some disembodied state of bliss. Heaven is understood in biblical language to be the place where God longs to dwell, where he makes his presence abide, where the presence of God dwells. Jesus left where God was as God to become man so that the incarnate Son of God would bring with him the very presence of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And now through the resurrected Son and the pouring of the Spirit, God's Spirit, the place where God's Spirit dwells is now in human temples of those who have committed their lives and received this gift of the Spirit. He wants to dwell here among us now. It's this word kingdom. It's, it's in the Greek, basilia, B-A-S-I-L-E-I-A. For those of you who like to get Greeky with me, it's the word kingdom, and it refers to this, the domain over which a king rules. The domain over which a king rules. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is everywhere where Jesus is given dominion and reign. 
which means you will not experience the kingdom of heaven in your marriage if you are still trying to control your marriage. Until he becomes the king of that relationship, his dominion and reign will not be preeminent in that space. The, the reason that we don't experience maybe the kingdom of heaven when it comes to our habits and our, our preferences and our lifestyle is because we have not yet fully allowed him to be king into how we live out our lives. And his dominion and his rule and reign has not gone into full effect. We're still wrestling for control in our lives. And your willpower will not cut it when it comes to overcoming the things that God can set you free from. And that comes from a mentality that's not just physical addictions, but that's men mental understandings, that's bitterness, that's, that's um, love, that's relationships, that's how we work, our ethics, our perceptions of life. It's every part of who we are. It's about allowing King Jesus to be King. And the kingdom of God is near everywhere Jesus is allowed to rule and reign in our lives and in our hearts. One of the things that I think is interesting that John did uh, and that the Bible says John came preparing the way. He came heralding something. He heralded. He came pronouncing, proclaiming, celebrating. Prepare the way. The king is coming. I find it interesting uh, that you could go look at Luke chapter 19 and Matthew chapter 20 and see the story of Jesus riding in to Jerusalem on a donkey. It's what we would call Palm Sunday, which is what we celebrate and acknowledge today. It is Palm Sunday today, the, the Sunday before the resurrection. Jesus came riding into town, and his disciples ran ahead of him and yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is such a pre a prequel to what would happen on Palm Sunday, what John did here. Go back and read it this week in Luke 19 and Matthew 20. The, the similarities are so amazing when you look at it. John came announcing, a king is coming, a king is coming. You didn't do that just for a prophet. You didn't do that just for some good teacher. You didn't do it for some official. No, you did it for the king. You celebrated and, and said, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And I think it's interesting, too, that um, not only did John prepare the way and kind of make the arrival known, and the same thing happened as Jesus rode into town, the, the disciples were singing, but the religious people of the day got a little upset at the proclamation. They got upset. And in uh, the triumphal arrival into, the king, into Jerusalem, uh, the religious people, they weren't participating in the celebration. They were a little indignant. They had these hearts of stone and pride and self-righteousness. And they're like, no, no, we're not going to join in the celebration. I don't believe it. He's not really king. I don't need to celebrate him. And Jesus said, you don't understand. If these people don't cry out, what did he say? The rocks themselves will cry out and proclaim that I'm king. What did John tell the Pharisees here in Matthew chapter 3? Oh, you don't like that he's come? You don't, you don't believe that he's here? You think that, that you're automatically going to get into the kingdom of God because you have some heritage? You were born in a certain nation, in a land, in a place? You think that you're automatically in because of your descendants of Abraham? I'm telling you, if God needed more kids, he would turn rocks into more kids. It's not about you, people. It's about the king that's coming. 
And these parallels of preparing the way is so incredible. Friends, I want you to understand something today. Like John, we have an assignment to prepare and proclaim the way of Jesus. We have an assignment to prepare the the relationships around us for people to understand that Jesus is coming. We have an assignment as the followers of Jesus to prepare hearts and lives and homes to meet Jesus. I think that looks like for us investing in relationships and friendships in our world so that one day the Jesus that we believe in, follow, serve, and look to resemble in our lives would come in personal contact with the people that we love in our life. Sometimes it looks like inviting them into your life so that they can see Jesus up close and personal. Sometimes it looks like having these relationships and inviting them to come to church so that they too can see what it looks like to be among the people and the family of God and to experience something that maybe they've never really experienced before. It looks like investing into these relationships intentionally, not to manipulate them, but so that they can rub up next to the people who have had a real life-transforming encounter with the risen Jesus. This is what our call is. Sometimes it looks like just sharing our story with other people as we help prepare them to see Jesus as king in their own life too. That's what I love about our story wall out there, our story of faith. Many of you have snapped a picture and written in one word or two words or a short phrase, what does it look like? What is your story of faith? How has Jesus become king and redeemed you. What does that look like for you? And I'm so thankful that many of you do it. And you can, at any point in time, do that and celebrate that and share your story. But John, indeed, not only prepared the way, he not only heralded the arrival of Jesus' coming, but, man, John confronted some of the religious diversions that were leading people away from God, that were leading people away from being ready to see Jesus clearly. I think sometimes in our idleness or in our waiting, we start to, like the religious leaders, find ourselves in places where we start edging into things where we no longer keep the main thing the main thing. The longer we await for Jesus to show up, it's easier to start majoring on the minors, isn't it? It's hard to keep focus on the main thing. It's hard to sometimes see things clearly. And what John did was he came in a moment and confronted these religious elites, these people who had grown accustomed to certain rituals and perceptions and thought they had understanding of some things, people that were familiar, people that grew up in in an environment, in a home that was said to have pleased God. It reminds me of how for many years we have this understanding, well, I'm an American, therefore I'm a Christian. Or I grew up in church, therefore, I'm a Christian. I, I know some scripture, and I went to Bible school, all seven of them in my hometown every summer, and I'm telling you, I know for sure that I'm a Christian. And John comes, and he confronts, and he says, you don't understand. You have, been, you have diverted your loyalty and allegiance into a direction that God is saying, if it's not actually bearing the fruit of the kingdom, that tree's getting cut down. 
John came and he says, fire is coming. It's going to burn away some of the things that you have added into your gospeling proclamation. And John came to start a fire within them that would purify. Fire always purifies some things. Friends, Jesus is coming again soon. And when he comes, he is coming back for a bride that is washed and clean and purified who has a single allegiance and affection and it's to him as king and lord there were assumptions that the religious leaders held on to and john was bringing them into light saying that's a wrong assumption that you hold but jesus is coming fix your eyes on jesus he's coming he's coming he's coming he's coming I feel like today I have an assignment from the Lord to help us clean up, trim out, de-weed some of the things that have grown into our understanding of, quote-unquote, the gospel. I am in no way trying to say that I'm here as John the Baptist or even like John the Baptist 3.0. I'm not saying any of those things. All I ju just feel is that there is an assignment on my life today to help open our eyes to some of the impurities that we've picked up, some of the extra things we've added into the gospel, and some of the things that perhaps we just assumed to be the gospel that haven't really aligned themselves with what the gospel Jesus proclaimed. And I want to do this today with great gentleness and humility. Because these are all things that I've had to confront in my own life and my own system of believing and in my own life that I've had to cut away and say, no, that's actually not the gospel that you proclaim, Jesus. And these are some things that have come from my own heart work in partnership with the Spirit to come to an understanding and a realization of the gospel that Jesus proclaimed is the only gospel that I want to hold to and proclaim myself. And that us as a church, I want us to hold to as well. Again, we want to start with the gospel that Jesus preached. Otherwise, we'll end up with a gospel that Jesus did not preach. Look again at Mark chapter 1. We read it last week, but I want to remind us what Jesus proclaimed. Mark 1, verse 14 and 15. I'm just going to read. It says, later on, John was arrested, John the Baptist. And then Jesus went into Galilee where he preached... Good news. God's good news. He gospeled something. The time promised by God has come at last, Jesus announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. What I'm hoping to do today in the next 10 minutes that we have together is to help us zoom back out and see the correct picture because I feel that many of us as we've grown up in the church or in our society in our world we've picked up some viewpoints that maybe uh, some assumptions even maybe some teaching that isn't completely what Jesus taught as the gospel doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad some are some are not but it's not the gospel it's not the gospel that Jesus proclaimed and I want us to look at those, but, but to help us understand what my heart and my desire to do today is this. I want to show you this picture. 
And uh, here's this first picture. Uh, tell me what you see in this picture, please. Go ahead and just kind of begin to, to shout out what is it that you see in this picture? House, clouds, animals, what else? Flowers, yeah, we, we see some things. There's some things that you see clearly. How many of you are sure that you're sure that you're sure you're seeing those things? Let me just kind of wave your hand. This is not a trick question. You are sure that you are seeing clouds and flowers and things. Yeah, abs- you are seeing those things correctly. That's correct. To raise your hand and say, yes, I'm seeing those things. That is the correct. Very good. Some of you are still not getting it. You're still, okay, good. You are seeing it correctly. But what if that's not the whole picture? Show them the next one. Now who do you see? You see Jesus. You see Jesus. Today, I want to help us not just simplify the gospel for brevity's sake in a way that shrinks the power and meaning of the actual gospel. I don't want us to fixate on a zoomed-in aspect of what the the Bible teaches that we miss the totality of what the gospel is. The four American pop gospels that I want to look at today, and when I say pop, I'm not talking about Justin Bieber, Taylor Swift, and Backstreet Boys of old. Okay, that's not the pop I'm talking about. I'm talking about the popular level of things that have been taught and proclaimed in our society. They are the Reformed Gospel, the Prosperity Gospel, the Evangelical Gospel, and the Social Gospel. Everybody just got a little more uncomfortable. Take a deep breath and remember that you love me. Here we go. I'm going to do something today that is reminiscent of how Jesus taught. Again, I'm not saying that I'm teaching like Jesus or my teaching is on the level of Jesus. Please don't hear today what I am not saying. I do ask that you would wait and hear the whole of the message and take it in light with that illustration that we just saw. And today will perhaps leave some of us a little uneasy, wondering, well, then what is the gospel? And for that, I would ask you to go back and listen to last Sunday's message. It might sit a little uneasy with us, but I think that when John looked at them and said the root is getting ready to get cut, it left them feeling a little uneasy too. Jesus often taught in comparing and contrasting. He he would say, you have heard it said, a popular teaching and gospeling of something, but I say to you this, and he would present a compare and a contrast at heart. Today, It's going to sound perhaps like a critique, but it is not my heart to be critical. I'm not trying to provide a snarky caricature. I truly want to give us a wide understanding of each of these, just kind of an overview, if you will, of each of these gospels, these American pop gospels. And and I want to acknowledge where they've added value to my life and to our life in our world today, but I also want to be clear about where they have taken us off course, walking in a way that was not and is not the way of Jesus. The old adage goes, for every one mile of road, there is two miles of ditches. 
you could say, I want to show you four ditches that we've often driven in, then overcorrected and gone into. And perhaps we can walk in the way of Jesus faithfully as we preach a gospel that Jesus preached, not a gospel that is prevalent in American pop Christianity. Amen? Are we good? Are we ready to go? Sit back. Let's go through this. I'm going to try to be true to our time and get through this in the next few minutes. Number one, the Reformed Gospel. Now, this is not my label. It is their label. Um, it's used by teachers, by churches, by church planning groups. Um, it is their label for their churches and their gospel that they preach. They call it the Reformed Gospel. At a popular overall view, it says something like this. God is perfect, holy, and just. God is a God of love, but it is expressed in his wrath and his holiness. You are morally guilty before him. God demands must be kept. You can't possibly keep those demands, but Jesus did it for you on the cross. There's a toxic version of this. It's not widespread, but it's out there enough, something that it would be equivalent to a more hyper-masculine version of this, and it comes off sounding a bit more like you are so evil that God had to kill his son for you, that God has already chosen to love some and hate some, to, to welcome some and damn some. You are a wretched person, and the more you remind yourself of it, perhaps you will stay cowering in the hands of an all-powerful God and receive his grace one day, if so elected. Living with this sense of obligation to always then point out, this toxic version, lives with this sense of obligation to always be pointing out false gospel, false teachers, and it's often done with a sense of pride and doctrinal arrogance snobbery. This is not the best of what would be considered the Reformed Church by any means. It is certainly not within a serious Christian view of those within the Reformed Church. And there are many, please hear me, there are many within that Reformed tribe that are wonderful, lovely, God-honoring people. But we're not here to police and condemn anyone. Many of the people who hold and would consider themselves in the tribe of the Reformed Gospel Church uh, hold to these things. And even those who would maybe carry the doctrinal label of Calvinist would find themselves often in this tribe and they are loving and wonderful and godly and holy fellow believers of Jesus. Do you hear me on this? The problem is not so much what is wrong with the topic, it's just that it, it's too small of a gospeling. It has the wrong emphasis. It's secondary issues. It equates the preaching of the gospel with preaching of a few reformed doctrines like penal substitutionary atonement, imputed righteousness, and justification. Albert Moeller Jr., president of the Southern Baptist Theology, Theological Seminary, says this, Justification by faith alone is not one doctrine among others. It is not merely one way of describing the gospel. It is the gospel. John Piper says it like this, I am thrilled to call justification the heart of the gospel. Friends, be sure justification and these atonement theories are represented within New Testament doctrine. 
they're in there. I believe in justification. I will preach justification. I believe it's in the scriptures. The problem is it's not as prevalent as you would think within the gospeling of the gospel. In fact, the word justification is only used twice in all of Jesus' teachings. Once in a proverbial saying, which doesn't really teach justification as you would think. It's just used in a different context. And a second time in a parable in a teaching between, uh, where Jesus is telling a parable between a Pharisee and a tax collector. It's a beautiful story. Paul uses the word justification predominantly in his writings. I think Paul wrote what, 12, 13 of the New Testament books. And of those New Testament writings, of all of Paul's writings, it's primarily found in two books, in Romans and Galatians. It's used once, and I think in Philemon, and once in either the Thessalonians or Tim- Timothy. The understanding of justification and the teaching on it is not used at all in any other of the New Testament writings. Not Paul, uh, not not, um, Peter's, not John's, not James's, not Matthew's. And it's absent a great deal in the Gospels if it is, quote unquote, the Gospel. Here's some of the good that I think is important that we understand from this Reformed gospel. It emphasized the cross in a beautiful way. It, it became a symbol for the whole of our Christian understanding. It has a very sophisticated view of sin and the solution for dealing with the guilt of those sins. It understands wrath within the context of love, which is a beautiful understanding. Again, the big issue with this that takes us off course is Jesus' gospel didn't include this. We're in the Reformed tradition. There is no good works at all in your Christian life. It's actually not what Jesus taught because Jesus spoke very highly of good works. Not to earn something, but Jesus spoke of our good works. Often. He spoke more about our good works than he did these other things. And the other big issue is that it misses a component of discipleship. Discipleship is something that you have to do. You do it in order to follow Jesus. Jesus did not say that he was going to do it all. And it can lead us to an overcorrection where we kill all of our desire and not just the fleshly drives within us. And the overcorrection of the Reformed gospel, I believe, is where we find the prosperity gospel. The financial blessing, prosperity gospel is kind of summarized in this way. The financial blessing and physical well-being is always God's will. It's achieved by giving money, visualization, and confession. At the popular level, it says God loves you and is for you. You're his child and loyalty. Through his death and resurrection, he won the victory. And now victory is your inheritance by faith. Victory over sickness, over poverty, over failure, and the best is yet to come. There was a hard version of the prosperity gospel, that hardline version of it. It was kind of exposed and diffused through the televangelist scandals of the 80s and the 90s. There's kind of a, a more therapeutic, soft version of the uh, prosperity gospel that's kind of become more popular today 
it's not really um, incorrect theology. It's just like a theology. It's like not really Bible at all. It's more of like principles and um, mental health and well-being and relational winning and much of celebrity pastor culture has kind of aligned itself there. It's kind of a soft where it's easy to cherry pick scriptures for your benefit that align with what you desire. It has less to do about allowing God to give you desires in your heart and more about God giving you the desires that you already have in your heart. It comes dangerously close to some new age thinking and laws of attraction. It has too much focus on ourself and too much of a results of God results from God not love and devotion toward God in other words it becomes God is for me in every area that I am for as opposed to being transformed by him friends hear me very very clearly I believe in healing. I believe that faith transforms things. I believe that the Bible is not shy to talk about money. It talks about money way more than what you're probably comfortable with. And while there was an emphasis that was really good about the reality that God is good and he is, that God is for you and he is, it helped bring about a holistic view of faith and it really moved the church world into really contending for the miraculous, something to which I stand firmly behind and say yes and amen to. But I don't get to control God with my words I don't get to rub the magic lamp and puff God does what I want him to. And I absolutely cannot allow the baptism of American culture to creep into my life in the realm of materialism, which is just dangerous. We miss, when we land in this area, we miss a robust understanding of suffering and testing and grief and pain, and we brought improper understanding of those things. And at the end of the day, if we hold without those things, we can end with a snooty version of those who have faith and those who obviously don't have enough faith. And so all of the problems in the world are simply because either you have a demon or you don't have enough faith. think that it's a little more robust than that. Scripture brings more than that into our understanding, and it's not the gospel that Jesus himself proclaimed in that way. Friends, I believe that confessing God's word is not about getting God to move on my behalf, nor is confessing God's word about me manifesting the desires that I want. But confession, especially confessing God's word, gets my mind and heart renewed to the truth about God, and it moves me toward him instead. This is 
what we long to see and do. Friends, next service, I'm going to present part two of these four American Gospels. I spent too much time trying to qualify all of my statements and hoping to soften some of the weight of what would be blown, and I have two more that I want to get to, and I want to bring it to you. And so next service, what I'm going to do is I'm going to provide some introduction, some small commentary, and then I'm going to get in, and I'm going to share the next two Gospels. You're welcome to stick around or just catch the podcast. We'll make both of them available online for you to see and to hear. Friends, here's, here's the... Here's the Here's where I want us to wrap, though, and sit with for just a minute. We cannot settle for a gospel that turns us into consumers of goods that Jesus did, but rather understand that what Jesus did for us gave us entrance into a kingdom stewardship and participation. That following Jesus and discipleship is absolutely works that we do of following him. And they are good and wonderful and a part of the transformation that God invites us into. Not to earn salvation. But as I'll share in the evangelical gospel, the gospel that Jesus proclaimed is not a salvation gospel. There's a benefit and a blessing of salvation. But that's not the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. He, he proclaimed the kingdom of God is near. Allow the kingship of Jesus to take full preeminence and reign in your life and your world. It's linked to, it's a part of the picture, but it's not the whole picture. We want to see Jesus clearly in all things. Amen? Let's stand and let's come to the table of the Lord together. If you would, go ahead and get your communion elements out. The top layer has the bread. The bottom layer there has the juice. You can go ahead and open both of those right now and just hold on to them. If you would, just bow your heads, close your eyes. and We're coming to proclaim Jesus through these elements. It is a gospeling of sorts. It is a, a gospeling that Jesus came to be king and usher in his kingdom. To provide a new way of relating to him and participating with him. Tim Keller says it like this. It's not the quality of our faith that saves us. Rather, it is the object of our faith that saves us. It is our allegiance and our loyalty to the king. And that is what we are allowing ourselves to center in on here as we take the communion together. Jesus, your body was broken, your blood was poured out. That was the payment for this new covenant. Yes. But that's not the central point of it all. The point of it all is so that we could have a right relationship so that we can walk in your kingdom and allow your kingdom to come and your will be to, to be done. Jesus, you are the king of our hearts and our lives. And Lord, today, if there's any areas where you're not king, where you're not Lord, would you just whisper those to us? 
Show us where our allegiance might be diverted or diluted or distracted. We thank you for it. Let's take the bread together. when you're ready, the juice. Just hold on to those cups. You'll be able to um, throw them away on your way out. Our hosts will be there to collect those empty cups from you. Let me pronounce a benediction over us today. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance towards you and give you peace. And everywhere we go, may we be reminded that we are radically loved by you, Jesus. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all the people of God said, Hey, friends and family, I hope today's message was life-giving for you. I want to ask you to take a next step and go ahead and click the subscribe button so you never miss another chance to have an encounter with God. And while you're at it, take another step and share it with a friend. Maybe post it on your social network or text a coworker the link. And when you do that, you are partnering and get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in them. Hey, if Faith Church has made an impact in your life, if these messages are helping you gain traction in your faith, would you consider partnering with us financially? When you do that, it helps us widen our reach so that more people can have an encounter with the real Jesus. You can find information and ways to give on our central hub, faithchurchks.org. If if you live in the Southeast Kansas region, we'd love to see you in person at one of our Sunday services. You can find those times on our hub as well, faithchurchks.org. Hey, remember this, God is for you and we love you.